Welcome to the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast, where we untangle the past, rewrite the present, and reclaim our future. I am your host, Tammy Vincent, and together we will break free from old patterns, heal wounds, and create new narratives. Are you ready to transform the effects of your dysfunctional past into your superpowers? Are you excited to get back in touch with your true authentic self? If so, then hit subscribe and join me weekly on the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast. Here we will learn from experts as well as experienced thrivers how to turn our trials into smiles while living our most authentic and joyful lives. Well, hello again and welcome to another episode of Adult Child of Dysfunction. Today we have with us Kimberly Henry. Do you go by Kim or Kimberly? I prefer Kimberly. Okay, Kimberly. Okay, she is a memoir writing expert. She was raised by her two alcoholic parents and experienced domestic violence at home. At the age of 20, Kimberly was pregnant with her daughter, whose father was a drug addict. She was a couple mo- couple of weeks short of her 23rd birthday when she chose to be a single parent and left the domestic violence relationship with her daughter's father. She believes in a movement to help others heal from their past trauma and writing memoirs is one of those ways. Welcome, Kimberly. So happy to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I just, you know, I always screen people to come on and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm looking for guests for adult children of dysfunction. And I read your first line, which says raised by two alcoholic parents. And I was like, shoe in. There you go. That's that's exactly. the mark. She Nothing qualifies. Else needs to be said. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so tell me a little bit more about like, who are you like growing up and what what was your experience like? It was chaotic. Just, I mean, dysfunction is like an understatement. It was just chaos. And by the time I was in high school, their alcoholism had been at its worst. So it was even more chaotic and crazier. And by that time, I was just depressed and I I isolated myself. And, you know, I did have the smarts and the wits to ask for help in school, which was the reason I graduated high school, because I had a counselor I could go to. However, my younger years, uh, for instance, I, I have memories of just being a little kid, like four or five years old, and they would be so drunk and they would have fights with each other, just throwing stuff at each other in the living room. And you took the brunt of a lot of that, I'm assuming. Well, I just didn't know what to do. So my whole thing, and I was always a very empathetic and intuitive kid, and I didn't know what to do. And so I would literally stop, cry and run. <laughs> that was like literally the only thing I knew what to do. It's so. like the old, when you see a fire, you stop, drop, and roll. So you yeah, would stop, exactly. cry, and run. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Perfect. But then what would be most upsetting is the next day, it was like nothing ever happened. Nobody talked about it. Nobody would say anything. It was like just totally put under the carpet and just acted like everything's all fine and dandy. And they went to work and nobody knew what life was like. And it was nuts. It drove me crazy. You know, it's funny. I was... Somebody was asking me, well, when was your aha moment? And I had so many different aha moments through my life. But one of the ones where people say, well, when did you realize something was wrong? And I was like, it was when I was seven years old at a ballpark. And you know how some of the ball, like the ball fields will have like 15 different fields. And I was on a swing set and I heard the shriek. I'll never forget it. I was in first grade and I heard the shriek and I'm like, oh, good golly. That sounds like my mother. And I look over and I guess a bee had flown up her pants or whatever. And she literally dropped her pants and went running. 
<laughs> screaming. I mean, you're talking 150, <laughs> 200 people, at least. I mean, it was 15 ball fields and it was a big tournament and wow. it was crazy. So my dad's like hugging her and like trying to console her, like trying to get her pants back on. And I remember like at seven years old, just going, okay, I can never face yeah. another person as long as I live. I mean, yep. literally, and that it was is, funny. I mean, we, it's funny, funny now, but I can only imagine being that age, like being mortified. Well, and I didn't, I didn't go to birthday parties after that from till we uh, moved in the fourth grade, we moved. So first, second, third grade, I never went anywhere because I was so afraid that somebody at that ball yeah. field had seen me and was seen my mother's and yeah. put us together like that. She would be the one dropping me off at the birthday party. So yeah, it's like you go, okay, something is definitely not right. But the same thing, we got in the car and it was literally like, it was never talked about. I don't think I ever spoke it out loud until like 20 years later, 30 years later. We didn't, even my brother and sister, like, I don't even know if they knew it happened because I wasn't with them. My brother was playing ball and my sister was doing whatever four-year-olds do. So I don't even know if they knew it happened. You know, it, that's how yeah. secret and, and segregated everything in the family was yeah. as far as that don't drop, you know, don't talk, don't tell. Like, yeah, don't act, don't tell. Is that? Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're fortunate yeah. in that you did have at least a counselor who got you help. Well, talking about the aha and when I knew something was wrong, it was when I went into eighth grade. When I was in seventh grade, I had experience being raped by two men who were brothers. And the only reason why I became friends with them is because I befriended one of the daughters of a bar fly friends of my parents. Okay. So my parents considered him a friend. However, how can you constitute a friend when all you're doing is sitting at a bar drinking together? Right. So I befriended their daughter. Their daughter were friends with these two guys. Therefore, it led to multiple times being raped by these two men because the (sighs) one guy, like, you know. It psychologically told me he loved me, he cared about me and all this stuff. So eighth grade, I stopped hanging out with them. I finally listened to my sister who was telling me like, you know, this isn't, and she didn't know what happened. I didn't tell anybody until years later what happened because I didn't even understand it was rape. I didn't know anything about sex. I just, nobody even had a conversation with me. I didn't know anything about it. I went into eighth grade and I went into a counselor and I was just like, something isn't right at my home. I don't know what's different because it was normal for me. Right. But when I started going to other people's houses, I was like, even my parent, even my friends that had one parent alcoholic, they weren't nearly as chaotic and crazy as my house. Right. So that counselor started helping me. And then she connected me to the counselor in high school. And that's who I had to, I got to see every day. And he started me with the meditation. So that was my first exposure to meditation. And then he would... Uh, make tapes for me so I could sleep because sleep was never my friend because everything was so crazy. I didn't know what to expect. And then uh, he would let me throw things at the wall. He would let me scream and cry into a pillow. And I just knew Monday mornings, Monday mornings were always the hardest because getting through the weekends was the most challenging part. So I knew Monday mornings I could skip first period and I could just go right to him. Well, you were blessed in having that. And for the listeners out there, that I try to tell people seek help. If it's somebody, you know, and it's a child, tell them to seek help because I didn't have anybody. And it's, you know, I look back at it now and people say to me, you know, well, I didn't, 
how didn't you have anybody? I'm like, I don't know, but there were clues. Like literally one of my books is how teachers can identify disconnected youth because I slept on my desk all the time. And, you know, it was people, I look back now and I'm like, not one of my 51 teachers that I had throughout school ever said, Tammy, why do you sleep on your desk all the time? Because I might've said at that point, because it's the only place I can sleep with both eyes closed. Exactly. You know, and and my one teacher, my second grade teacher, she, she was significant for me because she saw that something was not right. So she gave me, she knew that I wasn't confident. I was miserable. All of my school pictures, I'm, I'm miserable. Mm-hmm. And she gave me, she tried to instill some confidence. So she would allow me to take some tests home to grade them and then bring them back to her. And she would let me to stay after sometimes and help her. So she tried to instill that. She knew that something was happening. But back in the 80s, teachers didn't do anything about no. anything because it was no. obvious like you're saying there were big red flags that there was Huge. stuff happening at home but you know it's yeah. it's funny because if I look back at how the teachers treated me it was I was lazy and I didn't want to yes. learn and I and I didn't focus yep. and I you know yep. back then they could probably try harder tried. harder I got yeah. that on my report card every single freaking time I every single harder. time I'm like are you kidding me It it was, you know, or the comments were things like, you know, a bright, clearly a bright child, but doesn't seem to care. Well, when you're just trying to survive, you don't care about geometry. I could care less. Like, I'm like, no, I'm just trying to see, you know, what it's going to be like when I get home tonight. How, you know, what it's, what kind of freaking chaos is going to get thrown at me. Yeah. You know, what lies yeah. I'm going to have to tell the cover for the family secret What you know, there were so many yeah. different things. Now, would you, was the abuse, you said there was a lot of abuse. Um, was it between your parents? Was there also physical abuse towards yourself? Oh, I self hurt myself. Or not, I don't mean self hurt. I mean, towards you. Like, did they abuse oh, you physically? Well, the emotional, the emotional and the verbal. My father's word for me was asshole. That was more or less my nickname. That and was like, just constant. That was used more than my name. Oh, that's so awful. The, the, and it was crazy. I didn't even realize that that was like normal for me. So then now I'm in my 20s and 30s and I'm just like, other people's parents don't call them asshole just as like a name. Right. And I'm like, and what? Yeah. How many times now, now that you're an adult, have you heard people go, you know, that wasn't normal, right? And you're like, really? Yeah. I didn't yeah. know. I didn't. Well, it was like, Back in 2020, I was in like this transformation work and one of the coaches called another coach an asshole. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I don't use that language in these kinds of things, but something was in the space for me to do that. And right away it clicked for me. I'm like, oh, I have stuff around that. Yeah. Because that's a trigger for me. I don't use that word. I don't, it's not my thing. So I was just like, wow. So that, that that was clarity for me. So I was just like, wow, I just didn't realize how much I had around that one word. Oh, yeah. And that that one word was just, you know, it was like your identity. I mean, how terrible when people, they say people give you your identity based on your circumstances as a child. I mean, you yeah. literally grew up feeling like, well, I'm an asshole. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and, and, and honestly, be. I felt like nobody cared. So rebellion started early for me because I was like, all right, if nobody cares, then I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. 
Mm-hmm. So I did. I just did whatever and I didn't care. I didn't care about the consequences. I didn't care what I did. I was just like, oh, whatever. Well, and at that point, <laughs> you said you went through the sexual abuse. I mean, at that point, it's yeah. like you care so little about yourself. And I went through that. You have zero respect for your own body. You don't understand boundaries. You don't know you no. can say no. You don't know you're allowed to have no. feelings. You don't really know any of that at that age. You're feelings. just like, what were feelings? I'm I'm now 46. And I was just saying to, to someone, I'm just learning over the past four years to ask myself, what am I feeling? And, and is that's it a really, is it a true feeling? Or is it right. somebody else's feeling? Because I was right. constantly picking up other people's feelings, because I was always trying to navigate and I was the caretaker of everybody. I literally, I'm the youngest, but yeah, I was taking care of everybody. Right. So it's like yeah. fascinating because here I am in my forties and I'm just learning about feelings. Like feelings Did as you... a kid, I'm like, what were feelings? <laughs> well, I, I laugh and I talk about it on so many of my different podcast episodes because we talk about this, that you weren't allowed to feel even the happy feelings. Like if yeah. you were too happy, it was like, what the heck are you smiling about? Pow. You know, it's like, really, I can't. So there was you, you, you just learned to swallow everything. Um, It's crazy. Cabbage Patch Kids were my favorite when that came out in the 80s. mm -hmm. I had my favorite Cabbage Patch Kid. Her name was Sally. And she had brown ponytail hair. And she was my way that I dealt with all of the craziness. I would take her and it sounds horrible, but this is how I dealt with it, especially when they were throwing things at each other in the living room and like other crazy stuff. I would take Sally and I would bang her against the wall and I would even flush her head in the toilet. My parents never knew this was happening with my doll. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And that's just you just getting some rage out or whether yeah. you connected with Sally as yourself yeah. and you were just trying to, I mean, and, hurt and something just else trying to deal with it, just yeah. whatever, what, and, and everybody deals, you know, I say everybody deals with things different ways. Some people completely shut down. Some people dissociate. I mean, some people yeah. have the rage, the anger, but yeah, you, you know, for the listeners out there, it's like, I, and I, kind of gear a lot of these conversations so that they're like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Not feeling will never be the right thing. Not having emotions is never the right choice because I I mean, I, I was like 26, I was actually 18 or 19 went to the doctor and had bleeding ulcers. I was literally throwing up blood and no one ever said, Hey, what's your home life? Like, could it possibly be that, you know, you're, so anxious and and you're physically making yourself sick and no even going to therapists and everything nobody has ever said that to me but I know yeah you know I I yeah. know because I'm 55 yeah. and if I stress out I get heartburn wow so and I don't stress out as bad anymore because I'm 55 and I'm I'm happy now but back then yeah. when you hold that much stuff in it literally was eating me alive I mean, that's the best yeah, way to put that's it. That's what happens. My mom, yeah. my mom died from pancreatic cancer. And I didn't, I knew my mom had a lot of stuff. She didn't start telling me stories until she was going through chemo and can, uh, chemo and radiation. And so it was bizarre to me because now here I am in my thirties and you're just sharing stories with me about your father and about your brother. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? Then once she died, I went in and looked at the lineage and looked into all of the stories. Well, my grandmother was only a year old when her mother died. 
so then she was adopted by her brother's aunt and uncle her brother's father uh, brother's brother and wife when her okay. father died so of course she didn't know how to be a mother right she absolutely was, her family died by the time she was 20 so she was you know out doing living life with no family or anything so she was very harsh on my mom very critical always so was... comparing my mother to uh, my mother's cousin who was more like her sister mm. so that totally explained to me what was going on my mom my mom was always arm's length away she would never allow anybody to get close to her right well and I I feel like you know they talk about alcoholism being generational and I don't think it, it's not just generational because oh mom drank so that's all we know so we're gonna drink yeah. It's the fact that when you have the first, that first generation becomes emotionally unavailable and every generation after that is just feeding and feeding that gap of what they didn't get. So if mom, I mean, when I looked into it, it was so many underlinings of grief and loss and, and mm -hmm. nobody dealt with any of that. Nobody talked to anybody. Nobody went to go see anybody. Nobody even talked to each other about it. So is your relationship, do you, is your mom still living? No, no, she passed, but we became the closest. She, okay. We were always close, but it was in a dysfunctional way because like when she would have, by the time I got to be an adolescent, I was now the one getting in my father's face. Cause I was like, no, you're not doing that with mom anymore. So then I did it. So then by the time I was in high school, she was the one getting in between me and my dad because I just went back off of him. No matter what my oh. counselor said, my counselor is like, don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy. I'm like, no, F that. He's a no. jerk. I'm going to get in his face. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you, like you said, you were. I see it didn't serve me, but, you know, so by when she went through cancer, I was her caregiver and I was with her the whole time. And. You know, I would joke around with her. I would joke around with both of them. My dad would get mad at me because I was just like, come on, you had an, mom had an affair with a mailman because I'm not like either one of you. So like, what? And then one day I'm sitting in chemo with her and I'm watching her and I'm listening to her. And I was like, oh my God, I get it. And she's like, what? I said, I get how I'm like you, her sense of humor, how she knew people's names. And she, no matter what you did, if you picked up the garbage, if you clean the floor, like she would say your name and she would acknowledge you. Yep. She laughed and she's like, well, I'm glad you're in your thirties and I'm glad you're just getting this. And I'm glad you let go of the story that I had an affair. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's funny because it could have been so different had she told you those stories early. Yeah. You know, yeah, but she didn't know how to process any of that. She, it's interesting how things do repeat themselves because when she, when my grandmother died, my mother found her laying in her bed and my mother mm. panicked and she didn't call 911. She called my father. By the time my father got over there to call 911, my grandmother had passed in the bed. Mm. So now you fast forward in 2013 when my mom did end up going into the hospital. I came home after a day of apple picking and I found my mom collapsed on the bed and I panicked. And I didn't know what to do. And then I had to have someone tell me to call 911. So right. I called 911. They came and got her. They took her to the hospital. But it's just interesting how those things do repeat themselves. Because right. I think once my mom got into the hospital and had some consciousness to her when she got into ICU, I think it hit her that I experienced similar of what happened right. with her. She blacked it out. 
it was so traumatic with her with her mom that she blacked it out. So she couldn't tell me stories because she didn't right. even know how to process it. Right. And if, if you know, and if she was sense. and if she was an alcoholic, probably your whole life, I'm guessing. Well, that's interesting because I started asking questions to my godmother, who was basically her best friend for so many years. Mm -hmm. My father had been drinking for a long time. My father also had an affair before I was conceived and the affair just worsened as I got older. So that's when she started going to alcohol because she didn't know how to cope with the affair. Okay. So she didn't even drink until like maybe close to early 80s, maybe late 70s. Okay. When my dad had already been drinking for a number of years. Okay. So she just, yeah. I so she did it. Interesting. To, yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. Like I, I've always shared with my kids, not right away, obviously, but I just feel like there's so much healing that I had to do. And I feel like they, you know, especially since I didn't really start my healing journey until I was 26. And that's when my son was born when I was 27. So he took the brunt of a lot of it. He took the brunt of me not knowing about boundaries, me not knowing yeah. about unconditional love, me not know. I mean, I had to learn all of that stuff. He was like my scapegoat, like he or my my guinea pig. Like, let's see if mom can be a real person. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. No, so, I relate because it was the same thing raising my daughter on my own. Yeah. I didn't know you, the word boundaries. Mm -mm. No. And and really when you grow up in that kind of chaos and that kind of dysfunction. You're thinking in the back of your mind that to do the right thing, you just need to do the exact opposite of everything that was done to you. But so that's if exactly I, it. I don't so if coffee. I was not hugged, I, don't I was going to hug like my kid. I the smell kids. of coffee and it's because everybody drank coffee around me. So mm -hmm. I was a little kid and I was like, I'm not doing this. Everybody else is doing it. I'm not doing this. Mm -hmm. Or just even <laughs> things like, even just things like, um, I'm just trying to think of anything like, you know, you were called an asshole. So I'm sure you've never yeah. used those I words with your children. No, no. You know, I, exactly. we, I, and, and, oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. No, you're good. Go ahead. Uh, I was just thinking when I said, I didn't know the word boundaries, that is not totally true because when my daughter was young and my like parents would agree to babysit her, I ended up finding out they were taking her to the bar. And they were doing the same thing with her that they did with me. They'd sit her down at the table. They'd get her uh, Shirley Temple and they'd give her some kind of like peanuts or chips or something. Mm -hmm. And I found that out and I was like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. So yep. I stopped. I was like, if you want to see her, it's going to be either you come over to my place or I know that you're not drunk or I know that you're not going to be at the bar because you're not taking her there. She only has like one or two memories sitting at the bar with them. Cause I was like, nope, I don't want yep. her experiencing that. No. So you did. I mean, in the, even in the beginning, you did know boundaries, but you probably never experienced them when you were a child, you know, no, 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 no never. No. That's, and that's why you had, you know, I always say that too. When I said I went through my rebellious stage, that's the, that was my high school. When, when I got to college and people were like, oh, did you party in college? I'm like, no, I got it all out of my system in high school. I was completely, oh, really? I didn't go that way. See, it fascinates me how we're all so different because I didn't do anything. I was, I didn't go, I didn't do that at all. I was at a numb everything stage. I just didn't want to mm. feel anything. I was at a drink all the time, party all the time. Um, I just felt like I couldn't even be, I didn't even know who I was, but I, when I was drinking, I was happy and outgoing and go, you know, and now I'm like that normal. 
but yeah. that was me, but I couldn't do that unless I was drinking when I was in high school. Oh, that's so, interesting. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it is funny because so many people, like I've had so many people say to me, you know, oh, your parents were alcoholics. I'm glad you didn't choose to do that. And I'm like, it's not always a choice. Like you don't always go, oh, I think I'm going to drink myself to death today. It's more about just trying to fill a void, trying to numb the pain. I mean, when I was 16, my mom was, I I was actually living with my mom and she was doing stupid stuff. I mean, I didn't have a pay. I was working and she was taking my paychecks. She was a child psychiatrist. And when she died, she was waitressing at Friendly's. Wow. So she would work at the same place I worked so that she could get my paychecks because I was a minor. There was never food in the house. There was never, I mean, I used to go when I was in high school, I was living in Massachusetts with her and the bell would ring for lunch and I would run a mile and a half to the grocery store and eat anything I could find in the grocery store, like open packs of cookies, eat grapes out of the fruit thing, just steal whatever I could steal, stuff my face for 20 minutes. And then run, I had to actually, I think it was 12 minutes. I don't remember the exact timing, but then I had to run back to school. So it was three miles running and then 12 minutes of eating. And that was like literally all I ate for like four months because she was, but it was, you know, if I picked up a gallon of orange juice in my house, a hundred percent, I could be guaranteed that it was half vodka. Yeah. So yeah. no, I say to people all the time, I barely ate when I was growing up. I didn't mm-hmm. want to eat. No. Nope. And, and, you know, my mom, when she was on her deathbed, they told us to work it out because she was in hospice. The only thing I could get my sister to talk about was how we had trauma from my mother cooking pork chops. I don't go to pork chops today because she would put it on high. She would burn them to a freaking crisp. It would be so nasty of a smell. And she'd leave the pan all nasty and burnt. Oh my God. That was the only thing I could get my sister to talk about. So I'm laughing while I'm sitting at the foot of her bed while she's dying and my sister's at her head. And I was just like, oh my God. I'm like, here we are both having PTSD from burnt pork chops. Right. That's actually, it was funny because that was the day I truly understood PTSD was having to do with food and people laugh or no, it was Yeah, it was having to do with food because when I was in preschool, my mom used to make me eat soft boiled egg every day and she was a horrible cook. So some days they were runny, some days they were rubbery, some days they were just always disgusting. Let's put it that way. And I was in preschool and it was a fight every day. So some days she would literally like stuff them down my mouth. Some days she would put me in the closet and I wasn't allowed to eat till the next day. I mean, it was a different punishment every day. And we did this as she watched the soap opera as the world turns. So I'm literally sitting at the table in my kitchen and this is 16, 35 years later. And I wasn't even paying attention. The TV was running in the living room. And all of a sudden I literally vomited on the table. Wow. And I was like, because as the world turn came on, the music came on from that soap opera and I hadn't heard it in 35 years. And I was like, (laughs) wow. And I was like, okay, that was awkward. Had the whole reaction to it. But it it was when I truly 100% totally and completely grasped the concept of PTSD. Because that was 35 years later and it was a sound. It was a simple melody to a song. And it brought up such a physical reaction. And it didn't, wasn't like I thought, ooh, listen to that sound. I mean, I it was like a, a reflex. It was crazy. Yeah. No, I say to friends, there's certain music 
that I can't listen to because it brings me right back to being in a particular bar playing mm-hmm. that music on the jukebox and I sat at the table feeling lonesome while they were sitting at the bar fucking hanging out oh sorry <laughs> uh, sitting at the bar like drinking and having a good time with their friends and that so that crazy? music just is a trigger for me it goes right back to being like nine ten years old sitting at that table listening to those songs on the jukebox so for like your clients, because like, I know I have a lot of clients, like I have people that will come to me and they'll say, oh, this is such a trigger. Do you, like I use EFT tapping to get to break people of most triggers. Is that one of the things that you do or? No, I've done that a little bit, but I do mostly I meditate, which okay. I resisted for a long, long time. And that's the only thing that keeps me calm and that's the only thing that's helped me so far to connect with myself so that when I do ask what am I feeling and what's going on I can really tune in and tap in to what is happening rather than make up stories about it because so like we were saying we didn't know feelings and we didn't know how to connect with that and so here I am now in my 40s where I still get scared about feeling stuff right I'll eat junk food so that I can avoid feeling those feelings. My last podcast was so funny. He just said the same thing to me. He said, I just turned from alcohol because I didn't want to be an alcoholic like my parents. And I just started eating. And now I eat to to numb. And I was like, it's that's an addiction just like everything else. And he's well, like, you know I, what? Know, I know. Because when I was young, I went to junk food. I started mm-hmm. drinking soda probably at four. I had caps on my teeth when I was five. I had that surgery. Mm. And so soda was my biggest dysfunctional relationship that I had in my life. And I didn't give that up until like 2014. Wow. So that's my go-to is that when yeah. I want to check out, I just go to crap food because yep. that's what and I did my it, entire life. Yeah. And it's funny. I did um a lot of, you know, like you said, instead of changing the story, I do a lot of NLP work. So I do go back because what I've realized is I dissociated so badly all the time that I don't even know what the true story is anymore. Like I have these stories, but I'm almost positive that a lot of them I've made up because there's a blank. You have to, you know, the beginning, you know, the end, you got to make something up. Your brain has to think something. So I'm like, okay, well, being that there's a good chance that this isn't really how the story went anyway, I'm just going to rewrite it. Exactly. That's what I do too. Yeah. I'm just going to. Because I don't want it to be what I think it could be. So why not just rewrite it and tell myself a totally different story? (laughs) You know, and that's the same thing, especially for, you know, people out there listening that have these like, I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy or I'm not do that or I'm not, you know, and and all of these things that nobody has actually physically or like ever voiced those words to you, but they're feelings that you have because of things that happen. So you've given that meaning, you've given that it's. Exactly. that meaning and it's never been said to you so I'm like let's just go yeah. right back and rewrite that a good you know a good example is a girl I was talking to who had this guilt over her father liking her her more than she liked her brother so she the father was very aggressive and, and abusive to the brother but not to the sister to her mm-hmm. yeah. and she felt such guilt about that and I was like did he ever say I you know please like her more than me or don't like her more than me. And I'm like, you yeah. made that up. You made up that exactly. the guilt. Like, so let's just assume that the father did that. Let's give it a different story. Let's assume that the father's father so babied the, his sister that he feels the need now to overcompensate. Just give it that meaning. 
Exactly. And then you don't feel guilty about it, right? And she's like, no. Exactly. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes we have to do that with our mind. Because exactly. <laughs> you know, our mind is amazing, it but it can also- over a story that you tell yourself. Literally, you beat yourself up every day over stuff that isn't even true. That you just, yeah, yeah something that you put in your mind. So- yeah. Well, I could talk to you all day. I know you kind of have I know, a time I've thing. I know. Talking to you. <laughs> I know. I was like, we're going to have to talk some more because I feel like there's yeah. so many parallels, but yet there's, again, you have your own ways of dealing with every, everything. Everybody deals with things differently. Yeah. Some people say my mom was a drinker. I will never touch a drop. Some people don't mean to, but it's kind of what they know. I mean, I remember at three years old, four years old, my dad coming in and I would be like, hey, daddy, you want your scotch on the rocks or like light on the rocks or heavy on the rocks? I was like the little bartender at three and four oh, years old. I was the beer runner. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're home. You, you know, do you want a, beer, a can of beer? I'd go get the can of beer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so oh, it became very normal. OK, I'll go get you another one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can remember playing bridge. I don't think anybody even plays bridge anymore, but I would like sit in when my mom would pass out. My dad's like, well, you need, you need a bridge partner and she's asleep on the floor. So how about you step in? And I could only do that if I was drinking with the guys, you know, <laughs> at 15, wow. 14, you know? Wow. So it's like, Hmm. So that was different. something that my, my dad would never allow. I was in my twenties actually. And I went to their, um, their house one day. And they were sitting outside with a couple of guys that lived downstairs and next door. And they were all drinking beer and just talking and stuff. And I got up to the steps and I was greeting my parents. And the one guy says to me, oh, do you want a can of beer? Because we have another beer. And he went to go get it. And my dad immediately turned around and said, no, my daughter doesn't drink. I was like, excuse me? I'm an adult. I if I, I can speak to her myself. And he's like, no, you're not going to drink. I was like, no, you don't get to do that just because no. you don't want me to drink. I'm an adult now and I can say whether I want a beer or not. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's funny. He he was always very like hardcore on basically you're not going to do what I've been doing. Like I wanted to drop out of high school because it got to be very hard and I didn't want to be around it. And he did drop out of school. He didn't go to like middle school or whatever. Mm. And uh, he wouldn't let me drop out. We argued about it so many times and we had fights like face-to-face fights about it because he just wouldn't let me do it but you finished i did so one good thing one good (laughs) one good thing came out of that that's yeah that's it's it is funny and it's so and that's why i do this podcast honestly because i want different perspectives on the same thing because my growing up with two alcoholic parents is a hundred percent different than somebody else you know ultimately the same effects are all there. You have a lack of worth. You have a lack of self-esteem of self comp you know, confidence. You don't have a voice. You are afraid of so many different things or so many things that trigger you. I mean, your, your past oh has gosh, followed like, you. Huh? Not only that, but how much I disliked myself. Like I literally hated myself. Yes. For years. Self-loathing is. Yep. It was crazy. Um, That's one of the reasons I was living with my mom and I actually, contemplated i mean i i don't tell many people this but now i'm actually going to tell many people this but is taking her life and this a i flipped it and then the self-loathing that came out of that that what a horrible person am i that i could consider taking a life you know what i mean and that's you me into like four more years that's when i was really doing my biggest drinking because i was like who am i to think yeah. I could take a, you know, it didn't matter what she did. Who am I to think I could do that? And it was 
self-loathing on a whole nother level. Yeah. And, and that's normal, but yeah. And that's yeah. also the conflict of growing up with two alcoholics is like, my biggest problem was my dad, mm-hmm. like my, my mom, you know, she was my mom. Like I, yeah. I looked out for her more than anything, Yeah. but my dad, it was my issue. And it was the conflict of, I love him because he's my dad. And like, he did take care of me in ways that he knew how to take care of me. And I hated him as much as I could hate him. Yes. And when he was awful, he was awful to another extreme. Yep. And when he was good, he was good on another extreme. So it was so conflicting throughout the entire childhood because there was so many times where how could I hate this man as much as I hate him? Yeah. And, and that's our, we had the exact opposite. Like my dad, I was very close with my dad. I always knew right from the beginning, like anything he does is not his fault. It's he's wrestling his own demons and having to deal with her who, I mean, the biatch, that was her nickname for all my friends. They would literally walk in my house and be like, Hey bitch. Wow. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Because they knew that she wouldn't even react. She was usually like, you know, by the time school got out, she was in that catatonic kind of, yeah. but that literally was she, and then every once in a while she'd be like semi-lucid and be like, did you just call me? And I'm like, yeah, that's our name for you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Bye. Wow. Talk to the hand. So it was like exactly yeah. the opposite, but I was very close up to with my dad just passed like six years ago. And oh, I was, sorry. no, it's, he, he fought cancer for like 15 years. So he had a tough run of it, but I never had hard feelings, not one minute. But people would say, well, didn't your father do bad things to you? I'm like, no, my father never did anything wrong to me, mm-hmm. but he was never emotionally available to do anything right is the best way to exactly. describe that, That's what it was with my mom. That's mm-hmm. so. It's interesting because when I was taking care of her for that five months with cancer, she allowed me to take care of her and she allowed me to start being emotionally connected to her. Because mm-hmm. we got to experience things together that she did allow it. But it wasn't. And I just realized last week, the only time we ever saw my mother cry was the day that she was dying in hospice. And it was because the cousin that was more like her sister, she didn't know that she was even dying from cancer. So I had to go on a search to find her. And thankfully, the family is all from local. So I just did a random Google search on that last name and I found her brother-in-law and so I called him because I'm not afraid of calling people I don't know I don't care right I called him and I was like listen this is going to sound strange but my mom is related to you know your sister-in-law and she's dying and I don't know how to get in touch with her so he got in touch with her and she immediately called me and my mom couldn't communicate at this point but you knew she was there because of the eyes Mm -hmm. and I put the phone up to my mom's ear and as she was speaking to my mom my mom's tears were just flowing down her Aww. face it was just flooding with tears oh so that was your that gift was you gave your mom time, but that was the only time we saw my mom cry yeah i never saw, saw i don't think i ever saw my mom cry except she well not real tears she would fake things she would call me up and tell me she was dying of cancer and all these different things so that i would come live with her trying to do that and then i'd get up there and she'd be fine and i'd go away for another two years and you know it was just weird but um, yeah. yeah, I don't think I ever saw a, a true authentic tear ever, yeah. you know, where and that just blows my mind because that tells you how disconnected. Mm-hmm. It yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. Where my dad was very, even my kids, my kids absolutely adored him and would sleep, 
sleep over like all the time and make forts and sleep like right next to his bed. They make all these big forts and they'd all eat popcorn and watch movies. And I remember one day my daughter said to me, you know, I love grandpa more than anything else in the world, but he's the sweetest thing in the world. But as soon as he falls asleep, he just cusses and screams and growls. And he was so aggressive. He would have never let anybody see it in real life, but the anger they said when he would sleep. So one night I came and I laid down with them and wow, like the pain and torment when he was sleeping was unbelievable, but awake, he was the sweetest person in the world. That's sad. It was really sad. Internally suffering. Yeah. So bad. And then, you know, and, and they would sleep in his room with him is the only reason they knew they would make a bed. And I was like, wow, it was like to the point where I almost stopped them going over there. Cause I was like, this is traumatic. So I just told them, you know, cause they were little, I just said, you know, grandpa had a really rough life and he doesn't want to yell at people that are alive, you know, awake. Yeah. So he does it when yeah. he's sleeping. That's his way of being yeah. kind. And they were like, okay. Yeah. whatever works at that point you know they're seven exactly I'm working with that through my 25 year old because my dad had a heart attack when she was just six or seven and her last memory is my father screaming at her because she spilled a juice on the table and I got ticked off so then I got in my father's face and I grabbed my daughter and I left the house and I didn't speak to him for months that's Mm. her last memory of him so wow. we were working that out because she's like, he was just a big time jerk. And I was like, yeah, well, now that I'm learning all of what I'm learning, he just didn't know how to cope with anything. And it doesn't make it okay. Just he. No, I, I, I always say that. And, you know, again, the people out there listening, I always kind of gear it there, but they're fighting their own demons. And that's why I try, I, I advocate very hard to erasing that stigma behind addiction and and mental illness and stuff, because if we just look at it with more compassion and more empathy and try to get in their heads and understand that they're just fighting their own demons, then maybe we can give them a little grace. I mean, and if you can give someone grace, like you said, once you started hearing your mother's stories, you're like, Oh, I get it. I understand. And if you can understand why someone is hurting and that alcohol just happens to be their dopamine a choice and that alcohol has a very bad effect on their actions, then it's not the, it's not the alcohol that's doing it. It's the demons inside of them that they never got help with. And when you can do it like that and look at it more compassionately, boy, relationships can be mended that normally wouldn't be. Yeah. I always say my dad was living from the scared nine-year-old little boy because he never Mm -hmm. was older than nine years old. Mm -hmm. Life stopped for him at nine. Yep. And, and that helps, it helps to give, you know, and of course that doesn't in any way, like you said, negate the fact of the things they do, Mm -hmm. you know, like people always ask me, do you forgive your mom? There was nothing to like, no, the actions that she did and the things she did to me were unforgivable, but I don't have, I let go of all the anger, resentment and hatred for what she did, because I got to a place where I understood why she did it. Yes. But right. as far as like, no, I don't forgive you. Nobody should make their kids run three miles a day to a grocery store to, and or steal their joints and sell them for five days, you know, for five bucks in high school to survive. Like that's, that's not a good thing. You don't, that's you know, crazy. you don't pimp out, you don't pimp out your daughter to your drug dealers because you can't yeah. pay the bill. Like those are that's things right. that are not forgivable, yeah. but I let go of all that. And yeah. so to me, I've made peace. And in, that is my version of forgiving her. 
because yeah. I know it wasn't her. It, yeah. It, she didn't mean to do those things. So exactly. You know, we all have our our stuff. Exactly. I know forgiveness is a whole other topic. I try not to get it into because I, I get That's really a whole other thing. Yeah. I get yeah. so riled because I'm like, no, I will never. And the Hawaiian Hono Ono Puno, whatever. I yep. get it. I get where you're coming yep. from, but nope. Yep. <laughs> Can't do it. Yep. But anyway, I know you have another appointment in seven minutes. So I'm going oh, to yes. I know, and I'm looking at the clock, so I know you got to go. Thank you. But thank you so much for coming on. Please tell people, all the links are going to be in the show notes, but tell people the best way to reach you. Okay. And uh, the best thing is to follow me on Facebook, Kimberly Henry. And then I'm also on Instagram, the real Kimberly dot Henry. Okay. And I do have a free ebook, uh, Five Ways to Resolve from Your Own Personal Trauma, that they can send me an email and just connect to me on Facebook. Perfect. So all of that will be in the show notes. And then I always have my guests, please leave the listeners with something that they get, something tangible, something to hold on to or words of wisdom, anything. I think it's what we said before. I reached out, ask for support. Okay. It's not a sign and of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Amen. Amen. Especially so thank you for women, coming. Because women, we want to take care of everything and we want to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. so, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming, Kimberly. I appreciate thank you, it. Thank you, Tammy. I appreciate it. Okay. And for all the listeners out there, again, it's just one more person telling you that you are so worth getting the help that you so deserve. So thanks again and tune in to another episode. Have a good day. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast. If this episode resonated with you or you think someone else could benefit from what you heard, why not share it with someone you care about? Let's heal from our past and take back control of our lives together. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to www.tammyvincent.com for a free chapter of my book, Surviving Alcoholic Parents. While you're there, be sure to catch my invigorating seminar, Awakening Your Authentic Self. Together, we will rewrite our stories and turn trials into triumphant smiles. Until next time, keep embracing your strength, keep being you, and know that you are more than enough. You are way more than enough right here, right now.